Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Brittany. And we are the hosts of The Faves of Our Lives. We're a fairly new podcast that focuses on everyone's favorite everythings. Each season we talk about a different category, whether it be movies, music, books, etc. This season, we are discussing your favorite TV shows. Shows like The Office, Dexter, Dawson's Creek, Saved by the Bell, and much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the Faves of our L1 and let us know all about your faves. That's the Faves of our L and the number one. We hope to become one of your faves soon. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me is the Werner Herzog to my Errol Morris, Perry Sider. <laughs> oh, can we flip those? Can I, can I be Errol? I, I guess, but then I gotta eat the shoes, so. <laughs> fair. Yeah, fair. That's good. Okay, yeah, I'll eat the, I'll eat the shoe. Uh, if you can tell, we're talking documentaries today, um, with that deep dive about Werner Herzog eating his shoe. Which, have you seen that documentary? I have. It's, it's pretty, pretty fun. Um, but <laughs> made by another great documentary filmmaker, Les yes, Blank. Yes. So we're going to be talking about documentaries in just a moment, but Perry, what are you watching? What have I been watching? Oh gosh, um, let's, I, yeah, you always ask me this. I should prepare, right? I should think <laughs> about what I've been watching. I've been seeing, I've been going through so much stuff lately. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about what I've been going through on, uh, on the Criterion channel. Because okay, I've been absolutely. having a lot of fun with the Criterion channel this summer. Uh, and I went through a, uh, I went through a Brisson double feature. I did, okay. I did uh, A Man Escaped and Pickpocket. And Pickpocket I'd actually seen before. A Man Escaped I had never seen and always wanted to. Uh, so I've been getting really minimalist. Okay. <laughs> nice, minimalist. <laughs> uh, it, uh, you know, gleaning everything I can from Paul Schrader's famous book about transcendentalism in film and yes. how to, how to, how to do that in style. Uh, and that made up for the, uh, that was that was probably in response to the the week before in which the double feature was The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. I watched both of those, <laughs> having a real good time with both of those. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I love the Criterion Channel so much. That probably set you up for failure with Midsummer then. <laughs> uh, I'd seen Wicker Man before, okay. anyway, but yeah, it was it was uh, Midsummer doesn't suck because it's a bad version of The Wicker Man. It sucks all on its own. Okay, um, I meant to ask, how do you like the uh, Criterion Channel because? I am horrible in that I have been paying for it and have not used it yet. Um, I hope my wife does not listen to this podcast. Uh, because it, it's, been, it's been coming out of our bank account and it's there. And yet I, I can only watch it from my computer. And so I've got to find the right times to watch it. And I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But I'm really, I'm also a bit confused. I get the email every month that says, yes. hey, here's what to watch this day and this day and this day. But those titles are always there, right? Yes and no. There there okay. are titles that are there permanently, and I don't know if you can find out what that is or not. I don't think there's an easy way to just look at all the things that are permanently in the catalog. Okay. And there are other titles that do disappear. I will give them full credit for 
uh, since they launched uh, back in April, the last row of the home screen, if you search down in the Explorer section, mm-hmm. they group things in all sorts of ways. The very last thing is always uh, leaving May 31st or June okay. 31st, whatever the and last the day of the month okay. is. And that's incredibly helpful. I really appreciate that. I wish all services would do this. It's one of my big complaints about Netflix uh, and Amazon. L- let me know. Just let me know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> If it's if it's a month, put it on the screen. You can do that. You, you have the technology. <laughs> I thought Netflix was doing that for a bit, and maybe they stopped. Netflix will sometimes do it if you click into it; it'll oh, say it's okay, leaving okay, soon, okay. or maybe it has a date. But okay. like, I want I need that doesn't help me. I need it on the front page. I'm not going to click into it necessarily unless I know. Or if it's on if it's on my list, if I've said I might oh, yeah, watch send this, me an email or why can't you? Show me? Yeah, exactly. Send me yeah. an email. Anything. Okay, but the, the selection's pretty good, and... I adore it. Okay. <laughs> I adore it. I, I, I keep track of all the things I've watched on there, whether I've seen them or not, and since they launched in April, I've watched 19 films on there. Nice. Actually, it's basically 20. I have one I'm in the middle of that I'll finish later today. Okay. Uh, and then that's not even counting shorts or the extra features that I've watched. It's... I... I... This is the happiest the world... <laughs> I could give up Netflix and Prime... And any other streaming service if I just have this one. Well, I'll tell you what's really going to make me horrible is that I've been paying for this and I haven't watched it. But I can guarantee the day that stupid Disney streaming launches, I'm pulling up Star Wars or, or something. Uh, I, I will say I have As long as you're giving them money, Chris, that's okay. And I have been watching Criterion movies. I mentioned on the last uh, few episodes ago I watched the Criterion Tree of Life. Yes. Which was on disc and I paid more for it. Um, and I, I've been watching uh, the Criterion um, Before series. I got that last year. Oh, so, so so I've been watching Criterion movies. I just haven't been watching them on Criterion. That's fine. Um, what I watched recently, though, I don't think it was a Criterion version, but it was a special, like, two-disc edition. Uh, I revisited Dogma. Oh, uh, yeah. Smith's movie from, yeah. from 20 years ago, which I wanted to write about for Michigan Sports and Entertainment, and I'll put my review in the show notes. Um, that movie is very hard to find. That, yes. that is a hard movie to track down. Um, I could not find it on any streaming services to buy or rent, and I could not buy a disc on Amazon for it at all. It was it was crazy, and I don't know if it has to do with um, it being a Miramax movie and then just not finding a home after Miramax shut down or Weinstein's imploded or whatever. Um, but it is hard to find. But I found a copy at my library, so I rewatched Dogma. <laughs> And I gotta say, it made me happy and sad. Um, it made me happy that it is just as smart and funny and irreverent and well acted as I had remembered 20 years ago. I love that cast. It made me sad because Kevin Smith has never done anything oh, that good again. Not even close. And not even close. It made me really sad because this was, I mean, it's not a great movie. And I think Jay and Silent Bob have aged horribly, but, uh, I, it's asking questions and dealing with really deep, weird theological minutia in a poop comedy. Yes. And we don't get a lot of those. No. It, it was Kevin Smith doing something very ambitious and that he had been passionate about since he was a teenager. And after that, it was just back to the well for him. And it made me so sad to watch this and realize, oh, I, I feel like he he could have kept pushing. He could have kept taking chances. Oh, yeah. He, he got comfortable. And I think he is a director who is scared of fail, off by failure and just retreats right after that. And uh, 
I've I've spent hours trying to analyze Kevin Smith, and it's uh, it's 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 old hat at this point. Yeah. But that movie, yes, uh, Dogma chasing Amy and Clerks. That's a great. That's bunch. that's 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 the, yeah. That's three of first four films. Yeah. <laughs> but he spent everything he had on those films. There's been he, nothing interesting since. Uh, I think Dogma is excellent. I think it's his second best film. Uh, and first best being Mike chasing is, Amy. Uh, chasing Amy, I think, hits higher. The problem is the, that that last act of chasing Amy has never worked for me. I mean, he's uh, Kevin Smith has never made a four star movie for me. <laughs> I, I would probably agree with that. Um, and chasing Amy got the closest, and just I never buy that last moment. I never buy that that character is actually. Offering up that they should all have a threesome. It just feels like a movie moment. It never it's, feels it's real. It's a jokey moment. And it the movie needs kills a movie yeah. that otherwise was had enough real on it that yeah. it should have had a better ending. Dogma Dogma works throughout. And I, I'll tell you, every time I revisit it, what I am stunned by and I tell people and they don't believe me because they don't want to go back and watch Kevin Smith... Matt Damon's fantastic oh, in that movie. He's not good. He's not funny. He's great. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's great in that movie. Uh, he has a moment of genuine—I uh, don't even know what to call it—just genuine emotional overwhelmedness at the end of that movie. That is, uh, he is—he yes. has a come yes. to Jesus moment, literally. Yeah, that yeah. is uh, profound. I, I, I have no other way. I don't know how you play that. And he figured out how to play that. In, in that movie especially is just, it's a remarkable performance. Yes. Him, I love Alan Rickman in it. Um, Rickman's fantastic. I, I really like Ben Affleck It's the in only it. time I ever want Alanis Morissette in my life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I really Not like Dogma. Not singing. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's Dogma. I, I was really happy to find that it held up. I was watching it with my wife who was not as impressed. Um <laughs> She went, she went off and watched Good Omens after that, which I guess Bethany's half black. That's the best. <laughs> it's the best. It's the be- it's the, the best moment Jay ever had. <laughs> and Jason News crushes it. It's so funny. It's so well. That joke is well edited. It's well written. That's a great moment. I love the story that Jason Mewes was so intimidated by having Alan Rickman on the set that he was the only actor to memorize the script. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Snoochie Booches, man. So today, <laughs> we, we, I'm sorry, I gotta do one more Jason Mewes story. Go ahead, yeah, my favorite. Do you ever listen to the Clerks commentary track? I have not. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a moment where, like, they don't know where Muse is. He's not there at the beginning of the okay. commentary track, and all of a sudden, like, 30 minutes into the movie, there's just this loud, raucous entrance. I, he might yell Snoogie Boogies. I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. Just Muse makes this giant entrance, right? And 15 minutes later, there is snoring. And Muse has gone to sleep. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's fantastic. It's, it's, if you're, yes. As much as I don't want to watch his films, I will listen to Kevin Smith tell stories. Absolutely. So. Uh, well, we're moving on to people also telling true stories. Uh, we're going to talk about documentaries today. And there were a couple reasons I want to talk about this this week. Um, one is we're really living in the golden age of documentaries. I put together a few weeks ago my top ten li- or top five list for the year so far, and there were actually two documentaries at the top of that: um, Amazing Grace and Apollo Eleven. Uh, they are both fantastic movies. They are both 
movies that take old footage and make them new and vibrant in amazing ways. Uh, I really recommend that. Uh, last year, my top ten list had both uh, Bing Lau's skateboarding documentary, Mining the Gap, and Morgan Neville's Won't You Be My Neighbor on there. I could have also easily included Three Identical Strangers, Free Solo, or Judd Apatow's HBO documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling. Uh, in addition to Amazing Grace and Apollo 11 this year, we've had Finding Neverland, which is a hard watch but essential. Uh, we've had the political documentary Knock Down the House for Netflix, and two Fire Festival documentaries, <laughs> both of which are decent. Documentaries are hot right now. And I could not be happier about this because maybe it's my journalism background or just something to me that has kind of always gravitated toward nonfiction, even in the things I read. But I have long been a fan of the documentary format. Uh, the first fight I ever got into, and it wasn't a fight, it was a back and forth argument, uh, with my wife was when she asked if a movie I was watching was a documentary or a real film. Uh, <laughs> I can respect that. <laughs> and yes, I understand why I led to a fight. Don't give me. I'm not. I, 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 I don't wish to d- d- belittle either of you by laughing that hard at that. That's just a great story. Uh, and when I stream a movie, it's more likely that I find a documentary to stream. Uh, I think Hoop Dreams was probably the first one I paid any attention to. Uh, but in my 20s, I was quite taken with Supersize Me, Bowling for Columbine, and Murder Ball. So, really, an episode on documentaries is one I wanted to do since we started this podcast. But Perry, when we sat down to record our first episode, my interest got even more peaked because you mentioned in our Cinematic DNA episode that you have a complicated relationship with the forum. Yes. So I want to start things off by asking you about that. So for me, and I, and I, I laugh because I guess in my heart of hearts, I kind of land where your wife does. Okay. Um, for me, I come at film for the, for storytelling and for a story and, uh, First, first, you, you know, as with anything, you then learn to appreciate the art of film and what it takes to make a movie. And I sure. can, I'm not saying I demand a story. I can watch a sensory experience of a film and have a great mm-hmm. time with it. But for me, this gets at, uh, I, I can't remember, I, I can't remember who to give it credit to, but, uh, I, I can't remember who, it's somebody famous who said, the, the famous quote is, art is, art is a lie that tells the truth. And that's sort of central for me. That's how okay. I approach things. And for that reason, the worst thing a film can, uh, 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 a real film, <laughs> the worst thing <laughs> a fiction film can be for me is to tell me up front that it is based on a true story or inspired by a true story uh-huh. or anything like that. Because to me, what you are immediately doing more often than not, not all the time, there are great films that are like that, mm-hmm. but more often than not, you are compensating for something you failed to do in your storytelling. You want me to bring something to this that you didn't provide okay. in the movie you had. What I, and the reason I dislike that is because I, the reason that gets my back up is because I love movies that don't do that and aren't that and are completely made up stories. And what I appreciate is, okay, we have accepted once we start this journey, this is not real. And so then the challenge for me, and what I like best in a movie, this is not, I'm not saying a film has to do this. There are many ways to appreciate lots of movies. I'm speaking very personally from what I respond mm-hmm. from a movie. I want you then to get as close to real life as you can. Because that's powerful to me. If we accept this is make-believe, but how close can you get mm-hmm. to make me think that this is real, to make me believe in these characters, to make me go on this journey with you? 
documentaries to me fall into that trap of it's got to be all or nothing for a documentary for me to work. It needs to be rigorously true. Okay. <laughs> or it needs to be, this is just me. <laughs> and I think far too many documentaries fall into the valley between those two poles. Okay. And I, and it just makes me go, well, I don't know why you bothered that. I don't know what it is you really want from me. I, I, they always, they just, they, they just reek of, they can reek of exploitation so easily to me. Uh, it, it, especially if we're talking about a documentary film, a film that you made, that you made to make money. <laughs> I'm not talking sure. about a news report, which has its own issues mm-hmm. <laughs> with all of this about getting at what's real and how you're being manipulated. I, I, I just find that to be problematic for me more often than not. And there are fine practitioners of the genre for this. This is not an issue for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't include a Chris Marker film on this list. I could have very easily. Any of Chris Marker's uh, documentaries for me are like this. They're personal essays. They're journeys. Mm-hmm. That's fun for me. That's that's great. That's what I want from a documentary. Uh, I, I don't know what... Uh, I would rather watch a fictional account of Murderball than watch Murderball. And I've seen Murderball, and Murderball's a good documentary. I get it. I understand people are drawn mm-hmm. to it. But at the same time... I don't know what you get from that that you don't get from a, 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 a good magazine article that profiles this same thing. We're going to get into that in right. just a moment. Um, and that's, that's and actually... that is and that is me. Mm-hmm. I, I want to be very clear about this. I have great respect for what documentary filmmakers do. I think it's an incredibly... I think it's, it, is, it is how you learn to edit. You are given thousands of hours of footage sure. that you then have to assemble into something coherent. I think there's a, that this is not a question of skill. This is, this is personal taste. Mm-hmm. No, that I am talking about throughout this episode. I want to be very clear about that because I've chosen, I have chosen what are probably my three favorite documentaries. I'm not saying okay. they're the best documentaries ever made. I don't think they're representative of the forum as a whole. Uh, they are the three documentaries to me that, that accomplish what I like. Uh, what I like best. And I tr- want to stress that. What I like best. <laughs> okay. When I'm confronted with the word documentary. That is fair enough, and that's exactly how I chose my list. Excellent. Excellent. Because I, like, it's a fool's errand to pick yeah. the best of anything, uh, yes. which is why I like our favorites list. Um, I also didn't want to choose necessarily my favorites, because I think in our cinematic DNA episode, I talked about Integrate Silence. Yes. Uh, which is one of my favorite movies and a, a transcendent experience for me, but I didn't want to talk about it again. Fair. Um, so I tried to pick three that exemplify different things I love about the form. Um, and they're actually all fairly, I mean, within the last 20 years for me on this, I, I, there were three I picked. Um, I think they're all fairly easy to track down. Um, I will also say as much as I love the documentary format, I think it is one of the easiest forms to do badly. Um, <laughs> there are more documentaries on Netflix and Amazon than pretty much any other genre. And I would say probably a good 75% of them are, not, are bad. Um, I, so I think it's been an interesting conversation because I do agree. I think there is a danger in just putting something out there and saying, this is true and this is objective when I don't know that you can really be objective with a movie. Um, you're always making a choice about what you show and what you don't show. Um, and I like it when they find a, kind of a creative angle to that. Uh, so with that, what is your first film? Uh, I am going to tackle these uh, 
uh, I think I guess thematically we're going to tackle okay. these. Uh, and I started, and I have one from I have one from the seventies, one from the nineties, and one from the two thousand ten. Perfect. So I, I I stretched I stretched uh, my nineties film. Uh, so I I figured if I'm going to pick a documentary, I tried to think what is the documentary that does. Uh, that does deal directly with history in a real, mm-hmm. in, the, in what we think of as a traditional documentary way. Sure. What exposes something that I don't know that I haven't seen that I'm drawn to. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, for me, it's a documentary I watch, I think I watch it at least every three years since it came out. And it is, uh, it is Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Oh, yes, yes. By George Hickenlooper, Fax Bear, and Eleanor Coppola, uh, about the making of Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. I chose this because, like I said, it's just one of my favorites. I continue to go back to it. Uh, I I think it is the only time in history that I uh, the the documentary about the making of the movie is better to me than the movie, and the movie's really good. Okay, <laughs> I, this is not you know a documentary about a terribly made movie that's incredibly entertaining. <laughs> I mean, Apocalypse Now is really good. I think I think Hearts of Darkness is stunning. I, okay. I think it's such a remarkable. They they got very lucky that. People were around to take this footage. Uh, there, enough people were still alive to talk about. <laughs> it's been a long... Looking back on it, what it was like to make it. Yeah. Um, and it gets at the mania of filmmaking, mm-hmm. which is a topic close to my heart, obviously. Uh, and I, I think it gets at that in really rich and real ways that I, I haven't seen another documentary quite touch okay. the way this movie does. I, I, I'm just a huge fan. It's, uh, I know it was released on DVD. I have it on DVD. I don't know how easy it is to find otherwise. Uh, but, uh, oh, check it out if for no greater moment than, uh, than explaining that, uh, that, or, uh, <laughs> Orson Welles. <laughs> That's a tip off to what's coming later. Uh, <laughs> that Marlon Brando was making a million dollars a week and hadn't been, hadn't bothered to read the script or read Hearts of Darkness. And so was improvising all of his dialogue and there's footage of him, uh, just standing in front of a doorway with his hand to his head after a long pause and just saying, I can think of no more dialogue today. <laughs> Just, uh, it's, it's, that movie is everything that I want a show business, filmmaking, uh, and personal documentary to be. I think it's a great piece of work. It's been a lot, I feel like I have seen that years ago. I remember it being kind of like watching a mental breakdown on film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is funny because it's, you know, I, I do like those, Many people's, not just Francis's. Yes. I, I do like movies where, uh, behind the scenes that aren't the uh, production sanctioned ones, uh, which are always boring. Yes. Um, but where someone's kind of putting you like, nah, here's what really happened and everyone was really pissed off. Uh, there was actually years ago, I think it was made and just released a year or two ago, one about Disney's, um, Emperor's New Groove. Oh, yes. And yeah, how the Sting documentary. Yes, how much of a tortured thing <laughs> we, we got on that. Uh, no, that is a good pick. And it is available to stream on iTunes and YouTube. Yay! And, and Voodoo. So that's Hearts of Darkness. Check it out. That's really good. And they, mine is a little bit lighter. Uh, my, my first one. Um, I went, I try, I'm, I'm going to go with probably the most accessible one first. Uh, and so mine is a lot lighter. It is the 2007 documentary, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. <laughs> oh, yes. By Seth Gordon. And this, I, I, I like this because <laughs> you mentioned, you know, why not just make a movie instead of a documentary? And 
King of Kong is one of those movies where every few years there's a rumbling that, oh, they're going to do a scripted version of this. It's going to have Ben Stiller. It's going to have so-and-so in this. And I just, it's one of those movies where I'm like, you're never going to get, it's never going to work the way the documentary did. And you see this every few years. Yes. Uh, Robert Zemeckis did The Walk a few years ago with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which was a scripted version of Man on Wire, which is a fantastic movie. Yes. The Walk, I don't think I ever saw it, but from what I understand, it was not very well regarded. Uh, Steve Car- uh, Robert Zemeckis again did uh, Marwin last year. Yes. That's not Marwin call. Uh, <laughs> and, and so every few years you have these scripted films. <laughs> Nor is it margin call. Sorry, I couldn't resist. It was sitting there. I had to get it out, Chris. I apologize. No, that's I'll stop Tourette's now. I, I love that. That's great. And it's this is the most anyone has talked about Robert Zemeckis' Welcome to Marwin. <laughs> since or The released. Wire. Yes, or uh, the, walk. <laughs> the walk. The walk. Sorry, the walk. Uh, but uh, and so for years there was rumors that the King of Kong was going to get a scripted narrative version with Ben Stiller, and I don't think a scripted version could match the humor, weirdness, and heart that make this movie so memorable. Um, so much of what I love about documentaries is embodied in this movie. Uh, it takes a subject that I have no interest in. This is a movie about. <laughs> The competition. Have you seen this? Oh, yes. I know it well. It, it's the competition for the world championship of Donkey Kong. Yes. And it makes it so fascinating. And it's what I love is they delve into this world that has its own weird rules and quirks and weird characters. And it gives us, it gives us a story with heroes and villains that I just find completely engrossing to watch. <laughs> um, I, I think the hero in this movie, Steve Wiebe, is he's kind of this everyman. He's this teacher who has this really sob story of a life in that nothing has ever worked. Like, there is a montage of his friends talking about how everything almost works for him. <laughs> uh, he bought his house on the same day he was laid off from his job. And he's just this nice guy who wants to get a high score on Donkey Kong. And then it gives us a villain, Billy Mitchell. Billy. Who is one of the most fascinating documentary characters I've seen. He he has this glorious mullet. He wears red, white, and blue ties. USA is his handle whenever he records his score. Few close-ups have been so punchable as Billy Mitchell <laughs> yes. throughout this movie. Yeah, he, and he has lines like, you know, maybe they would like it better if I lose. Guess I ought to try that sometime. It just he's, he's such he's such an asshole. Um and I, what I love is they, you know, this documentary is edited in such a way that it turns into, you know, heroes and villains and this matchup that I should not care about at all, and yet I am rooting for the whole time. And what I love is a narrative feature would probably, especially if Seth Gordon directed it, would have to just be this series of wacky hijinks and pushing toward the competition. But a documentary kind of stops for some weird little digressions. Like there's the referee who... Walter. Walter, who is playing his guitar and writing songs and living out of his car. And there's the great uh, clip of Steve's Donkey Kong submission video where he's playing and about to get a high score and his kid is screaming, I need you to come wipe my butt. And I, 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 it's just one of those really? things. Really? You can't see that in a fiction film? I, that would hit a gag anybody would write. Come I, on. But I don't, know that it would, I don't know that it would work as well. I, I feel like... It's a moment that feels so real. The way it's captured, the way the kids screaming mm. in the background. I, I feel like there are so there are enough quirks and enough. I, I don't know. It's one of those things where 
reality is stranger than fiction. And I think the there are documentaries I love that capture that and shine a light on little subgroups that I would have no idea existed. Um, like, I, I think this is a movie that is as suspenseful and funny and entertaining and even it has as much heart as, you know, any, you know, dodgeball or anything like that, which isn't a high... Hi, bar. But, I mean... <laughs> I, I far prefer dodgeball. Uh, see, I love it. For what it's worth. And I really like, I, I like King of Kong, but and, I love dodgeball. <laughs> I, I do love dodgeball. But I, I think it's as R.I.P. Riptorn. Yeah, uh, this week as we're recording. Um, and Gordon's gone on to a pretty successful career, monetarily. Um, he created the TV show The Goldberg, or helped create it. And he directed um, Horrible Bosses, Identity Thief. And uh, Baywatch. But uh, <laughs> I like horrible bosses. So, so maybe he should stick with documentaries. Um, <laughs> but what I love about this is it is. It's it's this collection of characters who I feel would come off too broad in a scripted movie. But they, they have that shading of real life to them. And it's this subgroup that I would not I, I would not know existed. And I, this movie has a lot in common with what I like about um, another documentary, The Rock of Fire Explosion, which is about people who collect showbiz pizza animatronics and have this real nostalgic pull toward them or something like Best Worst Movie. Have you seen that one? Uh, uh, no, about Troll but 2, I know of it, yeah. Which, which finds the heart and the humor in bad movie fandom and something good that can come of a movie like Troll 2, which is this little community that forms around it. Uh, so I think the King of Kong, it's, it's not a, you know, a world changer. It's not really anything that I think takes visual risks, but it's what I like about documentaries. It's for me, that window into a world that I don't know exists that otherwise I wouldn't care about. And it's all real. Uh, and so that's, that's what I like about this one. But where I get into a problem mm-hmm. is if you say that's all real, cause it's, no, it is. It's edited. It's edited. Yes. <laughs> By definition, I'm not, yes. I'm not, I, I, again, I want to be real clear. I am getting at mm-hmm. my own person. Sure. It's like, you can tell me all that. And I agree with you. And that's a very entertaining and very mm-hmm. fun movie. And at part of me going, they're still earning points from you because you think it's all real and happening. Sure. And I don't know that that's true. I don't know that they don't formulate them meeting at that point in the, in the arcade to get it. And you can say, well, it doesn't matter. It's fine. It works for the movie. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. If that's your final end, you get really ethically shaky for me. And I mean, you, you specifically. Yeah, I mean, no, you it gets really ethically shaky for me. If you let people believe stuff like that and don't come real clean with that. And I don't like it. If it's a documentary doing that, I don't like it if it's a fiction. Like I said, my problem is both ways with this. If a fiction film is, mm-hmm using reality in a way that is incredibly unfair, that sucks. <laughs> and it sucks just like a documentary does for me a lot of the time. And so just by filming people like that in a weird subculture, there's some of them who are good. You know Billy Mitchell wants to be famous. Yes. And so just by filming Billy Mitchell, you are giving him what he wants <laughs> in a way that is... That complicates things for me. It's that's not that that I had a hard time just letting go for me from an intellectual standpoint. Fair enough. And that's and that's me again. I want to be real clear. I love King of Kong. I'm not running down this movie in the slightest. I think it's really entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's just what keeps documentaries from being great. I, I get much I, of the time. No, I get. It. I totally understand that. Uh, but disagree. But yeah, that's, that's, that's what, what this yes, is for. This absolutely. Is what this episode's for absolutely. Uh, what is your second? Uh, my second goes back to the 1970s. 
Okay. And I think it does a, uh, I, 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 I especially want to bring it up in context with something that happened, I can't remember if it was earlier this year or late last year in the film world. Uh, it is Orson Welles' F for Fake. Okay. Which better for the rest of my life and the lives beyond mine be remembered as Orson Welles' last film because nobody should think the other side of the wind <laughs> is Orson Welles' film. <laughs> no. There's a reason he didn't finish it. <laughs> He didn't want to. <laughs> he was not kept from it. He could have finished it at any point and didn't. F for Fake is the last film Orson made. And uh, have you ever seen it? I have not, but it okay. has been on my list for years. It is It is a 90-minute documentary about fakery, okay. which is why I love it. <laughs> okay. It is very upfront about what it's about. Uh, the, first, uh, the first two-thirds of it are uh, an examination of uh, Elmir Doré. A, the world's uh, probably greatest at that point living art forger. Okay. And it explains... Uh, uh, it also gets on screen Clifford Irving, who wrote a book about uh, about Elmer, explaining how he did what he did and, and his, his, his quite interesting life. Uh, if you don't know the name Clifford Irving, Clifford Irving went from that book to faking... Uh, that he had been, that he had access to Howard Hughes and had written oh, wow. a, a, a Howard Hughes biography. This is one of the most famous incidents in American hoaxdom. Yeah. Uh, it's that Clifford Irving. They made a movie about this with Richard Gere uh, 10 years ago called Hoax mm-hmm. <laughs> about the Clifford Irving scandal. Uh, and for an hour, the movie quite plainly uses all of the cinematic tricks available to a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And Wells is on screen right up front doing magic, explaining to you that he's doing all this in order to examine fakery and what's real and what isn't. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be an expert in something? And would experts, uh, would fakes exist if there were no experts? It asks all sorts of really wow. interesting questions. Uh, and then in the last 30 minutes, it takes a whole different turn. That I don't want to talk about here if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it at home. But I love this movie because, like I said, it is, it plays very fair with what is real and what is fake. Mm -hmm. And because that's its subject, it has to be very fair about what this, and it's quite open. It asks you to not necessarily believe any of this or to believe what you want to believe or tells you very clearly this is probably more true than this other thing and does so in the most enjoyable cinematic of ways I, I, I think it's a masterful movie I think it's everything if you've seen The Other Side of the Wind and haven't seen this this does everything that's interesting The Other Side of the Wind so much better okay. uh, 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 yes Effort I know it is currently on the Criterion then channel you've just uh, decided my uh, there's also a superb two disc uh, Criterion collection okay. edition of it it's available on disc that way as well uh Check out Effort Fake. It's 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 a film I dearly love. It's it's great fun, that, and I, I think it is a it's a it's a arguably the great film documentary. <laughs> that is probably something I will watch this weekend in my inaugural uh, Criterion Channel watch. You, you sold me on that, and thematically, it sounds like another documentary that I'm not going to mention because I'm wondering if you have it on your list for your third. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about it if it's not. Um, so my second is. Miles away from uh, <laughs> from um, King of Kong, in that it is not a carefully edited, um, you know, good versus evil, good character, you know, character based documentary. It is a very fly on the wall, small, micro budgeted movie that I don't even know got a release above besides DVD, and it's the two thousand one documentary Hell House by George oh. Ratliff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, I never saw it. I know of it. Yes. 
Uh, it is a movie that fascinates me, and it is one of the documentary those documentaries I'll pull out every few years. Um, it is very obviously situated to my interest because it follows a Texas church that puts on haunted houses that have the goal of scaring the hell out of people every year. Um, so instead of demons and witches, it's a church that puts together this bizarre haunted house where it's botched abortions, suicide, domestic violence, and mass shootings. Very disturbing stuff. Um, the film doesn't just observe the creation and building of the haunted house and walk you through it. It sits, it goes home with several of the church members. It sits in on meetings where they're discussing this and writing the scripts. It goes through the auditions that the teenagers have for this, as well as the very bizarre Oscar ceremony they have to see who was the best abortion victim, I guess. Um, and there, there's a moment. It's it's a fascinating film, and I was originally drawn to it about 15 years ago because I came from a very similar background. I don't. My church never did a hell house, but they would definitely have paid money for us to visit one. You know what I mean? Um, and my, you know, I, I really appreciated first off that this is not a this is not Jesus camp. This is not a polemic or anything like Michael Moore would do, where it's making this you know point like, look how crazy these Christians are. This is a movie that. Really, there's no narration. There's just observing them putting their, you know, putting this hell house together. And it takes, it, it grants them the respect of taking them seriously. So it doesn't juxtapose any of their discussions with news footage or opposing footage. It's just, okay, let's sit and watch these people do this really weird thing. Um, and, and it observes as one man is having dinner one morning and his two-year-old has a seizure and he prays this kid through a seizure and the seizure gets better. So it grants them the respect of taking them seriously. Even while you're probably watching this movie going, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> um, and it, to me, that is a movie that is more powerful than something that might be heavily edited or a little bit less subtle, like a Jesus camp, because it's not preaching at you. It's asking you to watch these people at work, watch what they're doing, watch how people are responding to it, and then you kind of have to wrestle with that. And it really, you know, it's. I'm not saying it's unbiased, because everything they're cutting and showing you has a point. They're, They're trying to get some sort of reaction out of you. But what I have found most fascinating is that as I return to this film, you know, every few years, my relationship to these people changes. Like, I remember watching this movie and going, well, hey, they're, they're treat, this is a movie that is taking Christians seriously and, <laughs> and is treating them with respect. And I will say it is. It allows them to have their say. It allows them to talk about why they feel it's important to show such horrible images. A few years later, I watched it and I was like, well, I, I admire their passion, but uh, this is a little problematic. And and now I watch it and I'm like, this is why people don't like Christians. <laughs> and and <laughs> the movie hasn't changed and the movie's not saying anything differently. But as I'm watching it and I have different experiences and I have different outlooks on faith, I'm kind of watching and going, oh, I have a different reaction to what they're doing because I've changed. And I, I, I find that very fascinating. Um, I, I find... It makes me think about ways that people of faith are kind of drawn to what they would consider illicit. Um, maybe because there's things they want to experience that they're not allowed to, and this gets them as close as they can mm-hmm. to, you know, being at a 
at a rave or something like that. Um, I love how it, it just so nonchalantly shows how kind of tone deaf some of these people are because there's the kid who thinks he's drawing a pentagram on the wall, but it's the Star of David. Uh, <laughs> you know, but it also grants them the, <laughs> it also grants them the seriousness of, you know, it watches their services and they're in tears because they believe very sincerely that, oh, we have a world we need to tell about heaven and hell. And it, it, it adds up to this very complex thing where I think they're very fair. And yet I don't think the people involved, the, the church members involved understand how they're coming off. And, and I, I think it's that kind of fly on the wall thing that allows you to draw your own conclusions that has made it a movie I return to over and over because I, I just, you're watching them do this thing they believe in very sincerely with all these flaws and all these problems and, and they don't realize how they're coming off. And, uh, there, you know, there's nothing calculated about what they're doing in terms of making the movie's point. They're very calculated for other things, but I, I, I just, I find that like, it's a movie I watch and go, okay, I know this, I know this subculture and I can see the problems with it, but I also see their sincerity. And, uh, I, I think that's what keeps drawing me towards it is it's, it's just dropping in and watching. Um, yeah. So tell house. I've always meant to see it. I I now really need to see it. I it's, will track it down the next time you're here. I will let you borrow it. All right. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and it is definitely one of those documentaries that is just, you know, my, my wife doesn't like it because she finds it boring. Uh, because it's just <laughs> sit and watch. It's just sit and watch. And I'm like, no, it's sit and watch because the movie's saying something without coming outright and saying it. And, and I, I do love that. Um, I prefer that kind of documentary to a... You know, Michael Moore or something like yes, that. Yes, I find it, uh, I'm not sad. I was disappointed that, you know, we, we, you know, if we ever wanted to revisit this topic, I would love to do, you know, just a whole episode devoted to the Maisels. I mean, those documentaries are amazing from Salesman to Gimme Shelter mm-hmm. to, you, you pick it. It's just, <laughs> they're all great. And that is, yes, that is this, that is a style that is very appealing, mm-hmm. uh, both visually and, uh, uh, I guess intellectually is the word I want, although it can be just as bogus as anything else. And, and yeah, I mean, that is the thing. I took a class on documentaries this year, and uh, I mean, that was the one thing that came out of it is there's no such thing as, you know, it's not journalism. Like, I, I, right. I, I get, I, I hear a lot of people like talk about it in a documentary, you know, casual moviegoers who are like, well, that's supposed to be journalism, and that's really biased. I'm like, but it's not journalism. I'm like, everyone who makes these movies has a point they're trying to make. It's just, how shrewd are they at making that point? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's how House, you can, I think it's on most streaming services too, but I'll just let you borrow it next time. So. <laughs> I will look when I get home. All right. What is your number three? Uh, my third is uh, a film that uh, I, I think owes a debt to F for Fake for sure, but I think it takes the, uh, it takes the formalistic games that F for Fake plays and then uses them to tell an incredibly personal story. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of my very favorite documentaries because, like I was saying before, it's an essay film. Mm-hmm. It's a very personal autobiographical film uh, that uses... Uh, it doesn't use the the techniques of cinema as much as F for Fake does, but it certainly uses them to get at the idea of, of telling stories. And because it's the movie, 
Stories We Tell. Sarah Polly's Stories We Tell <laughs> is uh, just a jaw dropper yes, yes. <laughs> of an experience. Uh, it, I love it because, uh, for those who don't know, the quick setup is that Sarah Polly, the wonderful actress and director of the uh, the wonderful film uh, Take This Waltz, and uh, 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 away from her. Away from her. Sorry, <laughs> I got stuck <laughs> far from her, which I knew wasn't right. I didn't want to say <laughs> away from her and take this waltz. Uh, after making those two fiction films, she made this documentary in which she explores uh, something about her past that she discovered. She does not discover it during the course of making the movie. It's not one of those movies. It's an attempt to reconcile this thing from her past. And uh, I don't want to give a lot away. Mm-hmm. I don't wish to spoil this. Other than to say what I love about it is how it plays with all these things we've talked about. Mm-hmm. With what is real, what what are you seeing, what do you think you are seeing. And it plays with those things in straight up cinematic terms. And then it plays with that thematically with what's going on in her life. And then on top of that, at the end of it all, if you have seen Away From Her and uh, Take This Waltz, it's a film that it's the only autobiography I've ever seen that truly an artist lays bare why she was interested mm-hmm. in the stuff she made in the first place. You can see why she was drawn to tell these two stories uh, with her first two feature mm-hmm. films. And I think it's very instructive that she hasn't made a film since this. Uh, yeah. I don't know if she sort of did everything she wanted or thought she could do with film as an art form. Uh, I, and if, if so, that's fine. She's three for three. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. few people ever pull that off. Um, uh, but oh my gosh, and I've probably way oversold it at this point. <laughs> I don't think you have. I will say, um, I will say, and I want, I almost want to do like a, I almost want to put a pin here and say, afterwards we'll have a little three minute, ah, uh, yeah, so, so, so let me do it this way. I saw this film, not to brag, I saw this at a film festival before it was released. Okay. Uh, officially. And the film I saw contains at least one, if not a handful of, uh, shots that were excised before it was released okay. theatrically. Um, that I think actually, uh, that, that actually diminish this, uh, this, 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 this aspect of the film. It makes it, uh, it makes it less clear cut. <laughs> Okay. What's going on in a way that I don't like? I, I actually prefer that original cut that I saw. That said, I, I don't know how much of my love for the film stems from that. I still have that in my head, even though I've seen the film on mm-hmm. DVD numerous times at this point. Uh, I, I wish those images were back in this movie. And if we want to do a quick thing later to explain more, I will. But I don't yeah, want to say anymore here because I don't want to give it away for those that haven't. I, I don't want to. I don't want to rob. Uh, Sarah Polly of what she's created with that movie if you've never seen it. When we end, we will do a brief after dark. Okay. So when we end, we will talk for a few minutes about that because I'm curious about that. Okay. Because this was almost on my list. Um, and the reason it wasn't on my list is I had a hunch you would be. <laughs> um, because I knew you loved this movie. I knew I'm you loved Sarah Polly. Uh, no, we obviously yes. talked Sarah Polly before. Um, and I remember when this movie came out, you were a big yeah. champion of it. Um, and I... I don't think people should know what happens in it. I, I think that, that I remember seeing this movie and it hits the point where you kind of see what the movie's doing. And it's one of the rare moments I was watching it on my couch and I gasped and I kind of had to pause it because I'm like, holy, I did not know the movie was going to take this approach. And, yes. Uh, it is great. And it is, it's thematically essential to what she's saying. And I, I love Sarah Polly's movies. I think 
she has been exploring marriage like no other filmmaker I've seen. Um, I I love this movie. This is a great choice. I I really like this movie quite a bit. Thank you. Um, I believe it was on my top ten list that year. Um, it was what two thousand thirteen, maybe. I can't. I again, it, it blurs for me because I saw it the year before, so I can never okay. keep this straight. I want to say it was two thousand thirteen because I think I had take this waltz on my two thousand twelve top ten list. And then it was maybe the next year I had Stories We Tell on there. Uh, it is a fantastic movie. I highly recommend it. We'll talk more about it in a few minutes. And your third? My third is definitely not a feel-good movie like uh, King of Kong. And it is definitely not a fly-on-the-wall documentary like Hell House. It is Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing oh. from 2012, which is one of the most devastating and powerful documentaries I've seen. Um, this is a movie... Have you seen this one? No, but okay. I know of it. I, I, I'm familiar, but I haven't seen it. This is a movie in which uh, the filmmakers travel to Indonesia where there were government-sanctioned mass killings in the 1960s that took the lives of nearly... I mean, I think it ranges from 500,000 to 2 million citizens, are what the estimates are. Um, they, you know, they were blamed with being communist sympathizers. There's never been a reckoning for this. There's never been any sort of action taken and actually the people who perpetrated the crimes are now in a lot of power throughout Indonesia and it's not something that's talked about and it's it risks being lost to time so what the filmmakers do they meet with the people who committed these atrocities uh, these people openly brag about it that it's kind of almost like folklore that they were involved in these mass murders and they ask them to cr- tell the stories of these crimes by recreating movies about them in whatever style they choose. So there's westerns and musicals and gangster movies that they create telling, telling, you know, telling and celebrating these crimes. And it's chilling and it's surreal. And there is a point to it because what he's doing is getting these people to confront their actions and observe them. And there's a thread in this movie, and I'm going to have to spoil it because it gets to why this movie really affects me. Um, one of these subjects is a man named Anwar Congo, who was responsible for hundreds of mass killings, and he brags about it. And he's kind of this outspoken, really proud, you know, I did this, and, you know, look how great I am. And he brags about how efficient he was at creating a method to kill people. So they... Later in the film, in the film he's making, he plays a victim where he has to kind of have this like rope around his neck that's going to kill him. And as he confronts it, you see him beginning to ask more questions. And is is this what I like at first? He's very nonchalant. Like he he watches his scene play back. He's like, I wouldn't have wore white pants to do that. And then he starts asking, is this what I did to people? Did I did I torture people? Did they suffer because of me? And there's a scene at the end of the movie where he goes up to the actual roof. Uh, they follow him up to the roof of where he actually committed these crimes. And it's the most devastating moment I've seen in a documentary. Because he's, he's going around, he's kind of joking about it, he's very nonchalant. And then he just starts retching. He gets this like hiccup in his throat where he's like, it's like he's trying to vomit something up and nothing comes up. Mm-hmm. And it is, it, like, it's chilling. And Josh Larson over at Film Spotting, he referred to this as like, it's like an exorcism. It's, it's like he's, 
he's the only one in the movie to really kind of reckon with this. But it's this moment where you, I, again, like what you've been saying, you don't know how sincere he is. But I don't, I don't think it's something you can fake, the, the reaction you see in this. It, it's a very... I, I don't even know... I've never seen anything like this. Um, it's this breakdown he has confronting what he's done. And it's extremely powerful. And uh, what I like about this movie so much, what really moves me... And it was, I think, number two on my top ten list that year. It really, first off, dispels this idea that a lot of people have of documentaries as dry and formulaic and state affairs. Because when you're seeing the glimpses of these movies that these people are making, it's very surreal. It's colorful. It's it, There are images in this movie that are, like, your brain has a hard time wrapping around what you're seeing because there there's a sequence, and it's on the poster for the movie, there's this giant fish statue and these dancers around it. And it, it's really it's really jarring and surreal which is an interesting way to deal with an issue that is otherwise going to be a painful slog to confront um you know it it often embraces its surrealism but it's also i i think it's very much a movie about what's powerful with film because it uses its visuals and its confrontational nature to address an actual historical atrocity that is going to be lost to time um, it uses film not just for these people to confront it, but for people in Indonesia to to finally hear this story that's buried by the government. Um, Oppenheimer and his crew, I think it was the Alamo Draft House's arm, Neon bought it. They smuggled this film into Ind- Indonesia after it was made. Uh, they uploaded it to Torrance. They, I think they actually dropped it from the sky so people could see this movie and find out about a part of their history that is being lost. And... Uh, the public now has to wrestle with that. There was actually a second film made in 2014 called The Look of Silence, which Oppenheimer, again, he deals with this same subject, and it's a quieter film about a man whose brother was killed, uh, and he visits the murderers under the guise of an eye exam. And he uses this eye exam to start asking questions and bringing this to mind and bringing it to light, not so much to get them to change their mind, but just so the story gets out there. Um, and, and I think it is, it, it's a very powerful movie. I highly recommend it. I know it's been on Netflix for a time. Um, and it's produced by Errol Morris and Werner Herzog. So both of us are on there. So, uh, <laughs> bring it all together. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It is not a good time at the movies, but I think it is one of the more important, powerful films of the decade. And, uh, it's one of the, it's, it's a movie that I don't know that narratively you could do this way. Um, you could make a movie dramatize like they're doing, like the gangsters are doing, dramatizing the crimes. But this is a movie that actually uses that to say something in a way that I think people pay attention to, maybe in a way that a typical news report or documentary wouldn't. So I recommend this movie. It is a great, powerful movie. Um, it's one of my top films of the decade. I need to see it. It's very good. Very good. Uh, what was not on your list that you almost put on your list? Uh, well, I so I decided, like I said up top, I wanted to pick my three favorites, and I immediately eliminated all concert videos. Okay. I, I, I eliminated that just because that seemed like, unless they were really, truly, greatly cinematic, mm-hmm. and there are a couple, 
uh, Stop Making Sense comes to mind for okay. sure. The Last Waltz comes to mind. But I like those for the content okay. more than anything else. I was trying to pick stuff that really was cinematic, that was using the tools of film mm-hmm. to tell its story, or in the case of Filmmaker's Apocalypse, to be about film itself. Right, right. Uh, but I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Gimme Shelter. I think Gimme Shelter is a, a remarkable documentary about the the Altamont concert, the infamous Altamont concert for the Stones. Uh, it that was pro- at which a, a film for its Pauline Kale review has always meant a lot to me. Where she said, "Okay, well, if you create an event that's you create it to be filmed, <laughs> and you set itself up for disaster to happen." Yeah. Then, are you, did you really accomplish anything by capturing disaster? <laughs> Which really sort of yeah. gets at my problem with documentaries. Yeah, <laughs> it's, sure. it's, so, for, it's a film that I, I love the film straight up and I love what it makes me think about, about documentary films. Uh, oh gosh, what else? I mean, I, it, I was, I think we've talked about this briefly. I was, uh, I turned 16 the year, uh, Roger and me came out. Okay. And if you're from Michigan, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're from the thumb of Michigan, oh, that film meant a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and I, and I, and I think he bettered it with Bowling for Columbine, which I still think is his best film. I really do like Bowling and for Columbine. And one that can't be touched. And interestingly, to prepare for this, uh, partly probably because we knew we were going to do this episode, I watched for the first time, uh, I, I hadn't seen Fahrenheit 11.9. I still have not seen that. I watched it. And it's and I didn't watch it before because I figured even if I like it, I know exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. And yep, uh, it's 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 exactly what you think it is, okay. with the exception that it is, uh, it is. I didn't realize how much of it he spends on the Flint water crisis. So it really is in oh, many ways a sequel to Roger and Me. Okay. He deals with that. That's a half hour of the film easily. Okay. It's not all Trump all the time. Okay. Uh, uh, and what else? I'm trying to think of. Other things. I mean, Great Gardens is, yeah. uh, you know. A classic and hard to deny. Uh, but again, I, it is not, like we talked at the top, it's a genre I am not drawn to. Given the choice of three sure. things to watch, I'm probably not going to pick the documentary. Sure. Uh, and that's just the way I'm wired. I almost went with, uh, I just saw it over the fall in our class, but we watched Frederick Weissman's um, High School. Oh, High which, School's great. I really like The Weissman stuff is great. Yes. Um, and his stuff is all on Canopy. If you have Canopy, Frederick Weissman's stuff is all on Canopy. Um, so there's a plug for that service. Uh, I really like Errol Morris's, um, there's three by him I really love. Uh, Gates of Heaven is yes. fantastic. Thin Blue Line is a movie I really like, but I think I admire it more than I really like it. Uh, Fog of War is really great too. Yes. Um, so I like those. Uh, Grizzly Man by Werner Herzog is a movie that is fascinating to me. Um, I, 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 but I think I like Werner Herzog as a personality, maybe more than a director. Um, (laughs) That's fair. OJ Made in America, I really was strongly considering. That's strong. That's a great piece of work. I, 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 I still consider that more TV than movies, and I, I think that's that's all fair. I think about that is great. I also think it's closer to journalism. Yes, I I I, I think it's I, I I would have probably dismissed it for that reason had I thought of it from my own, from my own from the list I'm creating here. Yeah, no, I, I would I would agree, and I, but I do love that movie. Um, I I thought for a moment about Hoop Dreams, but that's such an obvious pick. But Steve and Steve James actually did another movie I liked a lot better called Stevie. Uh, oh wow! His relationship. With yeah, him. no, I'm. I, I. No one ever does that. I'm so happy to hear that. 
I don't know that I agree with you, but I'm so happy to hear someone take that position. That's great. Um, you can prefer it to Hoop Dreams. And Born Under Brothels was one that really affected me a few years ago. I like that one a lot. And Stories We Tell almost was on my list. Which, we're going to finish up here. So, if you don't want to hear spoilers for Stories We Tell, turn it off now. We'll see you in a few weeks. But, uh, Perry... Go ahead. And start so, in the original, in the cut of, sorry, I don't want to say the original, in the cut of stories we tell that I saw originally at the Toronto Film Festival, there is, and I don't know if it's more than one. There's one specific shot that I remembered because it was the aha moment in the movie when I saw it the first time, and I, I swear it's not on the DVD, and it's. Uh, so, I guess I have to really give a lot of weight to explain mm-hmm. this. Well, throughout the film, there is footage of home movies. Right. That are of the Polly family. Yes. Uh, who you are introduced to in modern life, and then you learn about her, her, her mom mm-hmm. who's passed away, and her father. You meet her father in real life. He's still alive. He's actually recording the voiceover for mm-hmm. much of the movie. Uh, and then, because it's about something that happened between his parents, uh, that's part of the big secret she finds out. Uh, and you're seeing this old footage of him, at, uh, of, of this man who may have been having an affair with his mother. Yes. With her mother. Her mother. Her. That's and uh, there's a huge reveal, about the two-thirds moment, if I remember correctly in the movie, where you see uh, he's got a very specific mustache. This this man who uh, her mother was having the affair with has it as an old man, because you see him interviewed as mm-hmm. he really is. And you see this old footage of him. And then you see an actor putting on this fake old mustache from the old footage and you realize that all of this footage you have been seeing is completely do- is fake. It's not okay. real old footage of them. Uh, which you've been seeing throughout the movie mm-hmm. and you've been buying his name. To the point that at halfway through the movie I thought to myself the first time I saw it how did they they had a camera at everything. I was thinking the same thing <laughs> that I saw. Yep, that was... And yes, that's the reveal at which you find out oh, this is all been fake. And I'll, I have watched the movie... Uh, I've shown the movie to many, many people, and there are a handful of them, and these are not, these are not people who weren't watching, these are not people who mm-hmm. were staring at their phone half the time, who did not realize that this footage that you've seen throughout was faked. That it's not Even at the actual end of the movie they didn't realize? Yeah. They just didn't, they didn't click, because they were so drawn into the story itself. I feel like, isn't there They a- didn't let that go, and I, and I find that to be sad. Like, yeah. that's not what I want. That's not, the movie comes so clean and clear in the first version I saw it as. And I can't help but now see it as that. So I don't know if that's me. I don't know how much that is that shot or not. I don't know. Maybe the film's better without it. I truly don't know. But it's it's one of the great conundrums I've had uh, with the movie. I don't know whether it's... I don't know how much that affects it or how much the thought of it still being there still rides with me. I don't know if that's the actual film I'm reviewing, which only, truthfully, just plays right sure. finally into her theme overall anyway. So... I find it fascinating that people wouldn't get it by the end of the movie because it's so, like, it's not a gimmick. It ties into why she's making the movie. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So I feel like you're missing something if you don't understand that. But I feel like there's a part, and maybe I'm misremembering. It's been a long time since I've seen it. <laughs> Isn't there a part, though, where you're watching the home movie footage and Sarah Polly turns to the camera? Like filming, you see her. I can't remember. Them. It could be, but the thing is, even if you, if it, unless it's laid out super clear for mm-hmm. you in some way, you will be so wrapped up by the story that she is telling that it won't play. It won't necessarily register. You'll have bought all of that, and you'll have bought is into she her on screen at all. She, oh yeah, yeah. So I feel like the. Oh yeah, I feel like there is often a though. Not there's not just one moment when yeah. she suddenly appears. She's. I feel like there is a moment where it's supposed to be a time when she's a child. 
and you're watching the whole movie footage, and it's her as an adult, you see her behind the camera, and maybe, in my mind, she actually turns to the camera, and maybe I, maybe <laughs> and this I don't is, remember either. This is, might be a weird Mandela effect thing, <laughs> but that that seems to be the moment that's seared in my mind where oh, I see what she's doing. I need to watch that again. I need to watch that again. It's so good. Um, yeah, I highly recommend. Even if you know, if, if you know the quote unquote twist, I, I mean, oh yeah, it's a fabulous film. It's, it's, it's a great movie. Um, I want to know, listeners, what are your favorite documentaries? Absolutely. What should we check out? Uh, because there are a ton out there, and I think the interesting thing about it is we all have different ones we gravitate toward. So visit us on Facebook. Visit, uh, visit us on Twitter. That's all in the show notes. Uh, if you love what we're doing, you want us to keep doing it, and uh, maybe with some better audio quality, uh, throw some money on Patreon, and we'll give you some bonus episodes. we got some really fun ones coming up. In the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Perry Loves Film. You can hear me every Friday on 1290 AM in Ann Arbor on the Lucy and Lance Show talking about new movies. You can find me on Facebook, and you can probably find me in the third row center of your local multiplex. You can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can listen to uh, my other podcast, A Wasting Time, on Big Ed's Media. And you can also listen to, or I'm sorry, not listen to, but read my writing about film at Michigan Sports Entertainment. Read it aloud. Read it to yourself. It's great. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with another new episode. Until then, we'll see ya. Keep it true! <laughs>